Sansar Benazir is a love story from Afghanistan in a camp in Kabul for people displaced by war. And we follow Shaista, a young man who's newly married, and he struggles to join the Afghan National Army while also balancing responsibilities of starting a family. Hi, I'm Ken Jacobson, and welcome to Top Docs. Today, I'm talking with the directors of Three Songs for Benazir, Gulistan, and Elizabeth Mirzai and the producer, Omar Mullick. Three Songs for Benazir is one of the 15 films named to this year's Oscar shortlist, and the film will be released on Netflix on January 24th. Three Songs for Benazir had its world premiere at the 2021 Full Frame Documentary Film Festival, where it won the Jury Award for Best Short. Gulistan and Elizabeth Mirzai live in California now and split their time between California and Afghanistan. Their debut feature, Layla at the Bridge, which they co-directed, screened at dozens of festivals, including Lozarno, CPH Docs, and Edinburgh. Originally from Afghanistan, Gulistan spent part of his life as a refugee in Iran before returning to Kabul in 2001. And Elizabeth lived in Afghanistan for over eight years. This is a lovely documentary, and I really enjoyed talking to the two directors and the producers to find out a bit more about the camp where it takes place, and of course, about the loving couple, Shayasti and Benazir. And now, my conversation with Gulistan and Elizabeth Mirzai and Omar Mullik. Omar Mullik, Gulistan and Elizabeth Mirzai, welcome to Top Docs. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Your film, Three Songs for Benazir, takes place in a Kabul displacement camp in Afghanistan. Can you just give us a bit of background about this particular camp? It's a camp in the center of Kabul. The population has been increasing every year as more and more people are displaced by the war. We had seen it many times over the years, I was in Afghanistan for eight years. And of course, Golasan is from there. And we would pass this camp often and see that it was constantly expanding. Most of the people there are from the south of Afghanistan, which has been particularly hard hit by the impact of the war. We were actually visiting at the camp at a time on a kind of more humanitarian project. And we were involved in food distribution there. And that is how we met Shaista. So that does take me to my next question about what were the particular circumstances of your meeting of Shaista and Benazir? We were in this camp bringing food to people. Also, at one point, we had done more of a journalistic story on displacement. And it's a place where a lot of journalists go and they crack these stories about displacement every year as the issue is a major crisis. In the middle of this dust-colored camp, there's this young teenage boy at the time we met him, who was just full of life and wonder and curiosity and ambition. We became very good friends with him. We've known him now for over 10 years. We were just so drawn to him. And I know, Golasan, you can probably talk a little bit too about that connection that you had with him. When I saw he's like me, I was a refugee too. My father uh, was killed by Soviet landmine and I became a refugee in Iran. I, I live in the tent. The, the war is different, but our situation is the same. And we spent a lot of time with Shaista. We were friends with him for several years before we started this film at all. What gave you the impetus to decide to take out the camera and begin shooting with him? We found him extremely compelling. Obviously, he was a very close friend of ours. And 
When he introduced us to Benazir, they had just gotten married and we saw this gravity and this quiet strength that she exuded. And then this kind of magical interaction between them in the room, right? What happened when they were together? And we felt like this was something that felt unprecedented for us to be able to see this and what happens beyond the war, right? The war is on the outside of what happens inside these homes. He told us about his dream of joining the army and we just asked him, is it okay if we just start filming with you? We filmed for several years and we ended up having to leave Afghanistan at the time when I was pregnant with our first child. When we returned four years later, there were really shattering consequences to the choices that he had to make to build a life with Benazir. Omar, as the producer of the film, when did you first become aware of this project and, and come on board? The documentary world is a pretty small world. And I actually just realized yesterday that, that Elizabeth and I actually first met as sort of fellow cinematographers, potentially about to share duty on another film. It just shows you how small and tightly knit this world is. And then I think also for the amount of people that do go into Afghanistan to cover it, that's also another small world. And this sort of rough cut of sorts, this nascent film took place in another iteration in my inbox. And I have to concede that for a while there, it languished in the inbox because I thought, oh, it's great. It's something else. So when I get around to it, I'll see it. And then finally got around to seeing it. And anybody else who watches this, was utterly disarmed by the intimacy. They have a great phrase I've always wanted to use in my Volte Facci. They did a 180 on what is the standard narrative in that region. It's a quietly revolutionary and explosive film that people who are about to watch it have never seen anything from that region like that before. And it, it does so in the language of love, which is perhaps the greatest revolution it pulls off. One of the things that I think it does do is it presents this camp in an interesting way in that for me watching the film, it's sort of ironic, I guess, given that the war is going on and the word displacement implies a certain chaos to it for sure. But the camp has the feeling to me of being, you know, relatively calm and secure. It kind of feels like its own little world. Is that an accurate picture of the camp for the most part? It, it depends on who you talk to. We, we intentionally avoided on this like exoticizing the camp, right? It has a reputation in Kabul as a place that is not safe to go to. Like a lot of nonprofit workers would have to go there with like security, yeah. more security teams. Um, there have been a number of security incidents that have taken place at the camp. And we felt like we had seen this before and that's not what interested us. And we were really interested in what happened inside this particular home with this particular couple. And on top of that, because we had, been going there for so many years before we started filming and gotten to know people and they knew us that it was safe for us to go there and we were welcomed into people's homes. And we went some to bring the representative of the camp to Ministry of Refugee to bring the wood and food for the camp. Yeah, so we had already been really involved with people from the camp before this film in a much different capacity. So there was a lot of mutual trust that was already built. I know that camp quite well, actually, over the years. People don't know who've never been there that for many years, Kabul was always seen as a bit of a bubble. That like, you were, you were okay if you were in Kabul, and then to step out and go out was trickier, at least over the past two decades. And so the camp, for many people, represented actually their connection 
to other parts of Afghanistan, barring actually going to those regions yourself, which I have done as well, and as they have as well, because it represented all, you know, the rest of so much in its dynamic beauty and stuff like that. Very few people actually cracked it. They went there suspicious and nervous and all the rest of it. And what these two wonderful filmmakers actually did is wrestled for something of the national soul in what was so beautiful about this microcosm of a relationship in a camp that a lot of people circled, but very few people have actually cracked. There's an allusion in the film to the family's tribe. Their pastures, their ethnic the pastures. All, the all, most people that were there, like from, from Helmand. Yeah, so they're from southern Afghanistan, a particular area. They're from Sangin, actually, which you, you may have heard was a very difficult place in, in terms of the NATO fighting and the Taliban. And a lot of people were displaced from that particular region and ended up in this camp. It's not part of the film, but they're extremely marginalized inside of even Kabul. They're very much outsiders even there. I always, I'm ethnically questioned, but I, people don't know what that means. And there, there are about 55 tribes that historically when Afghanistan and Pakistan were, were built, the joke is an Englishman took a pencil arbitrarily and went around his teacup and cut right through the middle of them, but largely from the mountain areas and regions there that make up a great deal of both of those countries. And this couple belongs to one of those tribes. I think the most sort of significant tribe here is the family. That is really the unit that is most important in the film and in this young couple's life, I'm sure. I did want to ask about something outside of the camp, which is all you have to do is look up and see that American military surveillance balloon flying above that used to fly above Kabul. We see it in various shots. Shayuste even comments on it once, I believe. What did that balloon represent to people in the camp? Our decision to include it is because it's this ever-present to the point where it just feels mundane. It's there all the time, constantly surveilling them, this eye in the sky. And there's this feeling that everyone experiences inside the camp that we are being watched all the time. And at the same time, it's like life goes on as normal. It's just, it's part of the... The, the terrible reality of everyday life. And for us, it represented also just this disconnect, like this tethered balloon in the sky full of artificial eyes and not even a human interaction. And then the distance between them and the ground and all of the things that get lost in translation and in between that space. So let's talk about this couple, Shayiste and Benazir. They're very playful with each other. In the first scene, we see some teasing going on and we see that throughout the film. We also get a sense of their personalities. Benazir is quite shy. Shayuste is charismatic. He's outgoing. He's got a bit of bravado about him. I think we learn in this opening scene or soon after that they're married and she's pregnant. And they seem to be in love and very connected. But, you know, there's also a sense of a little bit of tension. For instance, he sings to her in that opening scene and he's apologizing in the context of one of the lyrics. What struck you about the specific dynamic that this couple has? We hadn't seen it represented in film. That was part of it. And also it was this playfulness and this tenderness is what really drew us into their their relationship and the story. It's a, a love story in a region that you don't typically associate with love stories. And there's this young couple, they have nothing besides each other, essentially. They don't have running water, electricity. They have hardly any possessions. And they have this whole world of hope inside their heart. We were really just felt 
so inspired to tell this story of wanting to flip what you associate with the region upside down and use cinema to challenge these stereotypes that we had seen over and over again and try to associate a new kind of cinematic grammar for the world. One of the things we learn about Shayuste is he wants to join the Afghan military, the army. There's that great shot of him looking at that billboard of the army and knowing what we know now about how things ended up with the army in Afghanistan and Kabul. I think as an audience watching this film now, we're filled with a sense of dread about somebody wanting to join the army, but it's his dream. Why do you think the army held such appeal for him? He tried to support the country and he wants to Afghanistan support without living in a tent. He wanted to defend Afghanistan and stand up for his country while also finding a way to support his family and move out of the camp. And he really ultimately wanted to not live in the camp anymore and be able to live in a house somewhere outside in Kabul. And I think it's you know important to show that he he was choosing the much harder path. And Afghan National Army is arguably one of was one of the most dangerous jobs in the entire world on the face of the earth. It counters this idea that Afghans weren't willing to defend their country because he had everything to lose, everything to lose in terms of family support. The much easier path would have been to follow the path that his family wanted for him. And he was willing to try to carve out his own path. I think that also on another level, like for an American audience, we really place a lot of emphasis on individualism and self-determination and that being the ultimate good. And I think that it gives you a different perception on other cultures and how much tradition and family play into one's decisions. In America, there's very little instances you would find where an adult man can't really choose his way in life. I wanted to talk about the scene where he goes to the army recruitment center and he basically says, I'm here and I want to sign up. He goes inside, he talks to the commanding officer, and it's quite an interesting eye-opening experience to learn that the bar is pretty low. Basically, they, he gives him the once over, he asks him a couple of questions, doesn't look like much is going to be verified. And then he just says, you need to get a couple of signatures at home and you need a guarantor who's somebody who will vouch for you if you desert, which is quite telling. Was that pretty much standard procedure? Yeah. And Golasan is saying that it's actually difficult. It looks very simple, but it's actually really difficult to get the guarantor's signature because they are and they would also need a governmental signature eventually as well like someone from inside the government so that is actually very difficult to get because when a person signs and this is me adding on to this right now when a person signs they're essentially saying if you do anything wrong if an insider attack or anything happens you steal we are going to be responsible for that and we will go to jail in your place. It's hard for someone to, to take that responsibility. Thanks for clarifying that, because it seems easy, but there's this one aspect, the guarantor, which is not. So 
he leaves the the station and he goes to try to get these signatures and talk about this guarantor with his family. It's a fascinating scene. I call it the Council of Elders scene, which happens just right there in the camp. His father is there. His older brother is there. And then there's some other men as well. I'm not sure if they're part of the family or they're part of the camp. Um, Representative of the camp. One of them is a representative of the camp. So one is a representative of the camp. My first question about that is, is that a common occurrence when a decision like that is being made to have this kind of informal gathering of the group to make a decision? Exactly, yes. Yeah, because Golasan is saying that because they live as a tribe and so the family unit, right? There it is a lot of extended family in all those scenes. It's a very large family and they all have a like a, a role in decision making. So it is to be expected. No one in this group thinks it's a good idea for him to join the army. He's determined, but his older brother and father are quite opposed. And his father says some really interesting things. He says, we won't be responsible for your wife if something happens. He says, if you join, the Taliban will chop us to pieces. And that's it. He says, we won't sign. You can't join. His father is very interesting because we've seen him in an earlier scene as well talking to his son. And while he may seem quite harsh in some ways to us, he's also quite practical and level-headed. These are very real considerations and consequences that could happen. As you were filming this scene where they're making this decision and afterwards, what were your thoughts about the two sides of this debate? Well, I should preface that by saying that Golasan and I, we don't speak Pashto fluently. Very, I, For me, very little. I speak Dari, and Golasan's a native Dari speaker, and we both yes. know probably about the same amount of Pashto. So we didn't really fully understand what was happening in terms of the language, but we were very aware that whatever was happening was not in Shaista's favor, just by his body language and the little bit of that we can understand of Pashto and then with him storming off. And then we got the whole story from him in Derry because we communicated that way together. And I think Tajik and I mean, it's surprising that you have to me Khanavadi Shrozi Nabudan, Yani. Yeah, because Mamut Venis and Bahadrike. شایسته ایزیمانی کار نداشت میخواست که خودش خود کپاپ باشه خودش نمیخواست که منتظر یک پیسی بسیار آسان باشه و پدرش هم و پدرش هم همچنین چون زمین برای زمین در کوکنار میرفت که برای گرفتن گولستان was just adding on that شایسته was not willing to just wait around for a handout which was a kind of point of tension between him and his father and he would rather just take things into his own hand. It would have been, you said it would have been easier for him to just go to harvest opium on the land that they did every year. But instead he wanted to choose this harder path. Did you have conversations with him about the decision and the aftermath of it? Well, I want to say that 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 I want to say that
به خانه میگیرم که برق داشته باشه آب داشته باشه so I said I'm going to try as hard as I can I'm going to I'm going to keep trying as hard as I can to do this I'm tired of life in the camp I want electricity I want a house of my own and safe place a safe place so his house had been broken into multiple times um, while we were in the Winter. camp as well um, lots of, the few possessions he had were stolen and he was just so determined to make this work even though the odds were completely against him So this is the point where I have a big spoiler alert for the audience. If you haven't seen the film yet, you need to see the film before you go any further in this podcast. So please do watch the film. Okay, at this point in the film or a couple of shots soon after we see him kind of storm out and express how determined he is to persist with his goal of joining the military, we see a title card that says four years later, When I saw that, my mind was racing about what could possibly have happened in those four years, because anything could have happened. But before we talk about what follows, were you following the couple and were you in touch with them this entire time? Were you checking in with them? Yeah, we tried to check in with them. We left at one point because I was pregnant with our first child. It was very difficult to reach them in the camp because of not having electricity. They couldn't try to so couldn't charge his phone and constantly changing phones, losing, losing it, borrowing a brother's phone. The, the best way we could find to reach them was through our producer, Homayun, who would go in person to the camp. That was really the only way we found that was a reliable way of maintaining contact. And Homayun would go occasionally and wasn't able to find Shaista. And eventually um, he was told that Shaista was um, now living under a bridge and he was dealing with addiction. And so Homoyun actually told us that, and we were planning um, on coming back to Afghanistan the next month, yeah. right? The next month to visit family and for a different project. He said that Shaisa was in a very bad situation. We immediately asked him, can you please bring him to treatment center? Like just do whatever you can, get him in the car, get him in a taxi, bring him somewhere. Because our first film in Afghanistan, Layla at the Bridge, took place at that same bridge and was about the opium addiction epidemic um, in the country. And so we We were very aware of how quickly someone could die under that bridge. He brought him to this center and we ended up coming to Afghanistan a few weeks after that when he was just been gotten into the center. And we knew that there would be like a missing part of the story in a sense. We pick up four years later, but we felt like this was the most honest way to tell his story. It's extremely effective and affecting and it really fills you with a lot of emotions as you're waiting to find out what happened. We do see him in the poppy fields collecting opium. Then we learn he's going to an addiction center. When he's there, his wife and his two children now visit him. And there's a really just tough moment when he says, why don't they have any shoes? And she says, because I don't have any money. Yet even in these really difficult circumstances, again, what comes through is the love that these to have for each other and the strong bond of the family. Did you find that was just the universal theme here that wherever they were, whatever the circumstances, somehow love was going to continue to be the bond that keeps these folks together in one way or another? Yeah, this is a story of real people. It's not, a, Afghanistan is not a story, a country of just statistics or guns. And this is a story of love. The film is really, I think, touches on how love can prevail against all the odds even up until the end, in spite of all this, right, his singing. I wanted to ask about his singing, which is quite lovely. And these songs that he sings, are these traditional songs? Does he adapt the lyrics? What can you tell us about these wonderful songs? 
to be honest with you, I don't know exactly, but uh, I don't know. We're actually not sure if he was just making it up or where he, I don't, we, I don't even think we ever asked him that. But again, in going in terms of the Pashto language, when we were filming the songs, we didn't know, um, especially because poetry and songs are so nuanced. We didn't know what he was singing about until after when we sat down and translated it, especially in the opening song, like we saw how much it foreshadowed what was to come in a lot of ways. A rich history of poetry. It's very much revered in the country and song. And Golasan is named after a famous book of poetry called The Land of Flowers. It's actually an Iranian book. This family is obviously quite poor. They don't have possessions. We tend not to see films or films don't really get made about poor people anywhere, including in, in Afghanistan. I read a statement from both of you in relation to the films that tend to get made about this region that there's a poverty of imagination about the lives of real people in the region. Can you elaborate on what you mean by that phrase, poverty of imagination? Well, I think it ties back into what we were saying earlier. Afghanistan is typically framed in a particular language that's very limiting. And you, you don't associate necessarily love stories with the region. You're always seeing the same, often the same stereotypes of turbans and guns and oppression and violence and war. And it really is focused on that. So that's really what I think we were addressing with that. We like to ask our guests, what's up next for you? It's a bit early for us to speak about right now, but we have a couple of different projects at different stages of development. And Omar, how about you? I'm now moving into a fiction space. And one of the exciting things on the horizon as soon as tomorrow is I start the Sundance Screenwriters Lab with a script I've been working on. And they just announced that in deadline in the press a few hours ago. Omar, before we started, you called this a counter-narrative. That's one of the contributions that your film has made to the landscape of films about this or any region. It's a true experience watching the film. Every scene, every moment is filled with some form of beauty and love, whether it's coming from you guys or from the people that you're filming or the landscape. I want to just thank you so much for being with us today and congratulate you on your incredible film. Thank you so much. Thank you thank so much. You, thank you so much. Thank you for having us. For your time. Get to writing, Omar. You're on <laughs> deadline. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>